0: My name is John Hendren, and you're listening to BachCast, episode 55. You've just heard the introduction to an extraordinary fugue by Johann Sebastian Bach. This is the fugue from the G minor uh, couplet, Prelude and Fugue, from the second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Now, just a little history, Bach wrote a collection of 24 preludes and fugues in every key. So one for every key. Um, There are 12 keys on a keyboard, and so every key in turn would have a major and a minor moded uh, place in that collection. And we're not sure exactly why Bach wrote this, but there are a lot of clues in the title. He's calling it the well-tempered keyboard. Uh, He doesn't specify harpsichord, although that's most likely the instrument that was, it was designed for. But it's this basic set of prelude and fugue, which we see many times in Bach. He, it's, a, it's a format he liked. We see it in his organ works as well. But in this case, the idea of taking different pieces and putting them in different keys has, a, has several implications. Number one, as an instructional tool, it would teach the student of the keyboard or of music in general how to play well on every key, because every key provides challenges of, of how many sharps and flats go with, with the key, and acclimating your hand on the keyboard. And so it's a really great exercise to play these pieces because, well, you're going to have to figure out how your hands feel on the keyboard. So there's a, there's a really pragmatic sense to that. But many commentators have been obsessed with the idea that uh, he's really talking about the tuning system. Because in Baroque times, We did not have a full adoption of this idea that we use today, especially on the modern piano, of equal temperament. Equal temperament basically is this idea that every step on the piano, every half step from D to D sharp, from E to F, from F to F sharp, would have an equal distant space in terms of the hertz, in terms of the frequencies. And the only problem with this is when you get to octaves, the math doesn't quite work out. And so folks in the Baroque period came up with solutions to try to make the octaves work out. And they did so by not making those intervals perfect. And you would have some jumps. You would have some what I would call very flavorful notes in there. Now, when I say perfect, there is no such thing as perfect, because even on the modern piano with equal temperament, those steps are not perfect in terms of mathematics. They are compromises to make all the tuning from the lowest note on your piano to the highest work out. And so there were lots of different ways to do this. The equal temperament that we're used to now is pretty much the way we've been acculturated to hear music. We, we hear the equal steps, and that makes sense to us. But for some players, or excuse me, some listeners, if you were to take a piece that was written in the key of G major and then transpose it, let's say up a whole step to A major or down several steps to E flat major, most of us are not really going to hear the difference between the original version in G and that new version in E flat, and there's nothing preventing us from transposing any one piece to any of the other 11 keys um, once we choose one. so if the notes if the piece starts on G we simply start on C and then all the adjustments would be made relative to uh, those initial intervals, which is to say back in in the time of Bach if you were to do that, you would definitely hear a difference because the keyboards were sort of, Primed for a certain set of keys or one particular key, and this all had to do with how you were tuning it. And so, because of the title, because of the obsession at the time of of trying to get around this issue where you'd have to retune the instrument to go to different different keys. Here's Johann Sebastian Bach, who's writing in a very Comfortable idiom for him, the idea idea of a of a prelude, a piece that sort of warms the fingers, that introduces you to the key, and then a few sort of the main the main entree, if you will, which was Bach's um, sort of forte, right, writing in counterpoint. So that's that's the background, and whether or not he's trying to say, hey, I've write, I've written a collection of pieces that can be played on one keyboard without having, without having to retune it or not, remains to be seen. There's a lot of conjecture about it. You can read some books about it, lots of academic articles about what Bach was trying to accomplish with this piece in terms of the collection. When we get specific to this piece, I'm not going to really care about the tuning system. We're going to hear some performances on different combinations of instruments. I'm going to start with the piano, actually. You heard an excerpt at the beginning of this fugue uh perform by Brad Meldo. Now Brad Meldo is most famous to us as a jazz pianist. Um, I own his collection uh, that came out several years ago of his his trio. Um uh, along with his colleagues he he plays kind of the jazz standards, but he also is pretty famous for adapting more popular music for the jazz idiom. And he recently released an album focused on Bach. And he takes some favorite pieces of Bach on the piano, and then he uh, intersperses those with his own uh, pieces that sort of harken back to the Bach original. And one of the pieces he chose to record was BWV 885, the Fugue, from the second well-tempered clavier, the Fugue in G minor. Now, what makes this Fugue kind of interesting is it's a very robust theme. Um, it has stops in it. Bam, bam, ba We have this sort of rhythmic thing going on, and that's what I always want to point out when we talk about Bach and taking fugue subjects or taking counterpoint. It's not just the melodic thing in Bach; it's that rhythmic thing. Um, he's got these these angular bam, bam, and then of course these repeated notes. So. I'm going to play for you another recording on piano. And I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to play Meldo's again. And I want you to hear the difference in those repeated notes. And it's that rhythmic intensity, that same note, that makes this such a attractive fugue subject. Because not only is it interesting melodically, but it has that sort of rhythmic vitality to it. And that rhythmic vitality really helps us when we're listening to this fugue because we can always listen for those sort of that, that rhythmic signature cutting through. Though, that we heard was Angela Hewitt. Angela Hewitt is a Canadian pianist. She's sort of a Bach specialist, and this is her um, recording of the of the second book, the Well Tempered Clavier, the two CD set. And you'll notice on those repeated figures, dun 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 dun. She she keeps the space there, which I appreciate on a piano because uh, that is sort of the the uh, the texture or the the attack we would expect to hear maybe on a harpsichord, which we'll hear in just a moment. But she seems, seems to crescendo uh, across it; it gets a little more intense. And uh, when we hear it the second time, she does the same thing. I think it's a natural human thing to do when we hear that dun 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 dun. Uh, it just we're sort of leaning in towards um, the resolution of that theme. And then we start to hear. Uh, we heard Maldo a second time just as a comparison because he doesn't do that it's just interesting to me um and then we hear uh the counter subject so that that is a called a counter subject and in fugues and typically we get to Bachian fugues um, those counter subjects are sort of the um so we have two voices enter. We have the first voice that has the theme. We have the second voice that comes in and also presents the theme. But then what is played against that second voice that comes in in the first? Well, that's the counter subject. And there's a very clear counter subject in here. I just kind of sang it for you. Please excuse my singing. Not trained as a singer. But I think you got the rhythmic piece of that. And that's what makes bad singing these theme So easy in Bach because there's this rhythmic component to it. But what I want you to hear is it's sort of a, a interesting construct. So you have the theme that's going to be woven in through four voices. We have a counter-subject, which we're also probably going to hear hint-hint. And we've got this rhythmic drive, dun dun, 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 dun. There's space in the notes. There's there's their short little phrases with, with some rests in there. In both the theme and the counter subject, which makes for some interesting, again, vitality with, with the rhythm. Um, it makes it just attractive, uh, and there's something driving about that, that repeated note, right? So that's what we're set up with this fugue. You've now heard versions on piano. I'd like you to hear uh, maybe something closer to what Bach would have heard uh, having performed it. This is... Um, Christophe Rousset, who is a French harpsichordist, and uh, I recently picked up there was a sort of a reissue of his recording of the Well-Tempered Clavier, both books one and two, Um, and recently been trying to enjoy that. And this is his rendition of BWV 885, the fugue. want to get into Brad Meldo's head, uh, but I find it interesting when we listen to that version of the harpsichord. Now, Rousseau is a very, um, he's very precise player. And when he gets those, those dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, of course, in a harpsichord, there's no really way to crescendo. Um, There is a way sort of to Give that leaning sense, and that would be to speed it up slightly. And some performances we do hear that we hear the dun 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 dun, even if it, you know, pushes it, rushes it, and then we get to the the big downbeat that it comes back into time. It, it's just a way for us to sort of emphasize that the power in that line, that having that repeated figure. But he doesn't do that here. Uh, what I really like about hearing this on the harpsichord is the precision and how things just kind of lock in. And I, I have to admit, every player is not as precise as uh, Christophe Rousset is, and so this is sort of a, a really interesting um, uh, example for us to hear because things are so um, very clear. I, I could say i've said it a couple times but it's it's a very it's a clear recording yes what i'm talking about is, is the clarity to be able to hear there there is one entrance of that repeated figure uh, which is a little harder to hear and that's because there's some other things going on but if, if you listen carefully you can hear it i always listen for it dun, 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 dun. you know you're hitting the end of, the, of that theme and then we have that counter subject that sort of takes over right when we hear it the top voice in the soprano voice uh it, it's sort of becomes familiar to us. And so, so far of what I've presented in this fugue, you've heard this subject that has a very uh, recognizable um, signature to it, and then this counter-subject, and it's all just sort of going together, and it's being introduced in the different voices, and it's exactly what we would expect from a Bach fugue. Now, it's going to get a little more interesting, and I'm going to give it away right now what Bach does, which is which is really kind of cool. So, as this fugue develops, not only uh, has Bach figured a way to combine a counter subject with the fugue subject, but he will start to harmonize and align the counter subject together in two voices at once. So, da 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 As I play more of this, I want you to hear when that figure is played in harmony, played by two voices at once. It's a pretty cool thing that he is able to take those together, align them, and play them together against the other stuff going on in the fugue. And So this next clip is from a string quartet, the Emerson Quartet, a preeminent... Uh, what I would call a modern string quartet that plays uh, very much uh, the standard quartet repertoire. You're going to hear some vibrato in in the violins especially uh, but what I like about when we take this keyboard music and divide it into four distinct voices is when I talk about clarity once again, it's going to be much more easier to hear the separation of the four voices. And so, what we're going to be listening for here again is that counter-subject that gets um, kind of built in onto, doubled uh, with an interval between it, so that it's in Right. It was in the top two voices, um, and it just sort of sings out. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's being played by two people? Yes, um, that's that's really kind of cool. Um, I got to tell you that this piece, it just has something about it. you. You want to keep listening to it. And I think, again, it's that rhythmic vitality that, that's a part of the, the subject and the counter subject. And this is a really, um, even though playing Bach on strings with vibrato is really not my thing. I, th- I think this recording is, uh, is a good one. Uh, this, this came out a number of years ago on the um, Deutsche Grammophon label. Um, it's simply entitled Bach Fugues by the Emerson String Quartet, and it features uh, fugues from the first and second books of the Well-Tempered Clavier, including some that had been arranged by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, Mozart later in his career became sort of, uh, very interested in fugues. He uh, discovered Bach and, uh, not only did he write some of his own, but he, he set about in, in arranging Bach. And so uh, this is a a pretty good album, especially if you like fugues and if you like the collection and want to hear it sort of a different way, but they're not the only ones to, uh, entertain us this way. So I'm going to give you a counterpoint. This is, um, an album, uh, by the Bach players, and this is, uh, again, sort of a string rendition of this fugue, but played on Baroque instruments in uh, more of a historically informed playing style. definitely different playing style. Um, you could make your own decision whether you like one versus the other. Uh, but they seem, I think, overall to do a little bit less in terms of the, um, the rhythmic vitality of the music. I think they're a little more, if I were to conjecture, that they're a little more focused on uh, what the what the sound would have been like on an instrument available to Bach, whether it's a clavichord that has some, some control. But um, they don't go maybe to the same extreme that Emerson goes. Um, and I think there's delight in both of them. Now, we talked about how Bach is taking the counter subject and is being able to harmonize it. Well, could he outdo that? Could he could he stretch his uh, intellectual muscle anymore, his skill as a composer? And uh, we might say, well, let's take a look at what bach did after this right he writes the art of fugue he writes the six part Richard car from the musical offering and so in this piece uh, he his challenges met when he harmonizes not only the counter subject but he ends up being able to harmonize the subject itself and so i'm going to let you listen more and this is again from the same performance by the bach players <laughs> where if you are musically inclined you can read music that uh, taking a look at this score reveals some of what I'm talking about and in some cases it makes it easier to hear the parts even when you're listening to a performance like this with uh, each part on a, at a different instrument. I do think that the recording by the Emerson just the way it was recorded and mic'd, makes it even a little easier to hear the distinction uh, in the parts and I think those players are maybe a little more uh, independent Uh, and so I think that helps as well, but the the technique that, um, is used here is when, um, you know, Bach is not fully writing it out in harmony, but he's, he's got that motif there and, uh, you you see it in the score. Uh, the particular score I'm going to, to link up in the show notes is a really nice one. Um. It's it's viewable right in your web browser. You don't have to download anything. Um, I believe you can actually have the uh, the website play it to you, and and you can see the score there. But uh, it, it fits. It's a very tightly uh, written one, and it, it kind of fits nicely. What you're going to see there is not sort of the four-part version that makes it very easy to see. We call that open score that maybe the string players would use, but it's the keyboard version. But one of the easiest things for us to see is that repeated pattern. Dun, 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 dun. And we see that that Bach is trying to sort of match that as the fugue progresses with with some harmony. Um, And then we have, you know, that theme. Dun, 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 dun. And then we have that running line. You'll see that repeated throughout. And when it starts to to harmonize and we have the the counter subject with it, it's just sort of an, an emotional thing um, you may or may not hear that. I think you do. I think that's what makes this piece interesting, just from just sitting back and just listening to it wash over you. I think that is the explanation for why this gets sort of intense at the end. But you can listen to this piece many times, and I would encourage you to. I would encourage you to, to hear it on different instruments, on different interpretations. Uh, I think it's it's worth your time to do that, to sort of begin to under. Un- uncover some of the real art when we talk about box art it's it's is at the compositional level it's it's how he's putting notes together how he's weaving themes how he's um balancing the themes against counter themes in this case we're calling them subjects and counter subjects and then eventually he has to end the piece and it's kind of interesting too because um he has has a few parts here and i'm, I'm looking at this score and i'm it's It's three pages on one line. Uh, they do have measure numbers, which is helpful. So if you have a score, the measure numbers will be the same no matter what. Um, so you get into measure 75, 76, 77, and then measure 78,. Dun, dun, we're sort of we've sort of had that same rhythmic motif that starts and then he starts to put a little coda on the piece where he's reading restating things one more time. But he ends up bringing it all together, and this is always something I'm amazed with with Bach. Is like, how do you stop? How do you stop all this momentum? How do you, how do you bring things to a close? And typically, and I say typically, if you start maybe at the the first book of the Well Tempered Clavier, his fugues are be, become what I well they are the textbook fugues. That's when we study fugues that we look at Bach's fugues in the, in this particular collection. And we think of Bach as the sort of the high art of writing the fugue, at least until we get to the maybe even the the, like the 20th century, although there's some great examples of counterpoint in Mozart as well. But what I'm saying here, if you take a look at this, um, he typically states the theme multiple times. And the sort of the game is you've got to present it to each one of the four voices. But then how he wraps it up is kind of neat. So I'm going to let you listen to one more recording. Um, this one um, is by the ensemble called Fretwork. And Fretwork uh, is a is a viol ensemble, a viol. Um, and that is sort of, you might call it a predecessor to the violin family. They certainly were... Being played at the same time, but it, it is tended to be thought of as as the older set of instruments. Now we know from box time the viola da gamba that that sort of never died out of fashion, um, but the other viols the the treble, the tenor, the alto these are the the consorts that would be that were popular in by English composers. We think of William Laws or William Byrd or uh, Orlando Gibbons. Uh, they were writing this this music for. Uh, consorts of uh, string instruments but they have a very there's a softer sound to them they're bowed uh, typically um, the bow is held differently the instruments bowed differently there are frets on the instruments and so it it's it sort of thought of as an older um, predecessor to the, the the italian violin family which would include the viola and the cello fretwork is, is an ensemble that i, I like a lot and this, uh, this album from 2005 is called Alio Modo. And I have I've sampled from it before. I really like the album. It's sort of arrangements of different pieces by Bach. And it does include the prelude and the fugue. Uh, we're going to sort of focus maybe on the, the later half of the fugue just to give you, again, another flavor, another interpretation of this uh, piece by Bach. BWV 885 So Bach ends by taking the themes, the little snippets of the theme, and just shows us, gives us a little taste. Oh, yeah, you can combine it this way, too. Uh, and brings them together with that final little flourish. There's almost two times that the piece seems to end, but there's like so much energy going on with those themes that finally you breathe. And, you know, getting the major mode at the end is sort of a very satisfying way to end that piece. Folks, I hope you enjoyed hearing these different performances of BWV 885, The Fugue from Bach's uh, G Minor, uh, Prelude and Fugue from the Second Well-Tempered Clavier. My name is John Hendren, and you've been listening to episode 55 of BachCast. You can learn more about uh, Bach, you can learn more about Baroque music and recordings of Baroque music at my website, bieberfan.org, that's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. Thanks for listening.